Welcome to the Abstract Doctors Podcast Special, the Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. William Walker. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors Podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another episode of our Abstract Veteran Series. My name is Char Gatlin. I'm your co-host, along with Dr. Ron Seal. Um, we're here to talk about the Limbic Sissy Studies, kind of what they're doing and how we do it. As I pointed out in the past, um, most veterans and most of our listeners will understand the five W's, the who, what, where, when, and why, but we're here to discuss the how, and the how being in a way that you know we can all understand. Um, you know, many of us have been in studies ourselves, many of us around a hard science, but some of the terminology and the jargon is, is a little bit difficult to understand. And our job is to break it down for you and put it out to the masses. And it's a job that I think we do very well, at least we try to do anyway. What do you think about that, Rocky? Oh, um, I was uh, looking at the questions from our consumers. Uh, um, I apologize. Uh, no, 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 no problem. No problem. It's, it's early. I've been tied up the past day. We had a contractor over the house and I've been Busting rock, you know, when I got wounded years ago and uh, diagnosed with TBI, I mean, it's been a, an odd, an odd journey to say the least, but short term and long term memory are always sort of problematic. But the one thing that I never forgot was how to bust rock. I don't know if that's because I was an infantry soldier or it's just it's just that simple. But busting rocks, what it's about, I think, sometimes. And that's what Limbic Sensei does. You know, they're going to sort of bust up this enigmatic injury that is TBI into such a way that we can little pieces that we can understand it put it out there in an, in an effort to hopefully solve some of these problems and make life better for um, for not only us veterans, but our civilian counterparts and our society as a whole. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. William Walker. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. And where may I ask are you out of this morning? Um, right now, I'm over at the Richmond uh, VA Hospital, Veterans Administration Hospital <laughs> in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. Um, so um, Central Virginia Health System. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm here in my office. Actually, it's interesting. We use this office kind of for, for multiple purposes, including um, research participant testing. And I actually had to check. We had someone scheduled to get tested today. We have some apparatus in here, including um, some audiology testing, some computerized eye tracking, some central auditory processing testing equipment in here. Um, that, so we bring them into this office for some of the aspects of the testing. We take them uh, elsewhere in our hospital as well. But uh, to make a long story short, um, the person uh, scheduled had to cancel. So uh, that's why I'm that's why I'm here. I, I was th- I was going to do it at, at, from my home if that didn't you know transpire. You've so. done more than before 9 a.m. than I think anyone else has done out here. I mean that's the old that's the old army army motto. I'm out here in Montana, so I'm a couple years behind you, but uh, a couple couple hours behind you. I apologize. So, um, so welcome to the show. Glad to have you. And uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your study and, and what you do. Right. So, um, I'm the uh, study chairman for our kind of signature study in the um, consortium, the uh, Long Term Impact of Military Brain Injury um, Consortium. Um, so we started this study about eight years ago. Well, really, we started conceiving it before that, but um, 
we started enrolling um, participants about eight years ago. And so what, what, um, by the by the way, that's strictly um, in the military population. Um, we enroll individuals who had combat deployments, either current military or former military. Um, and so the idea is to, to um, assess them and follow them and look for any signs of neurologic effects from their combat deployments. And one of the key things we're looking at um, is to see about how many mild traumatic brain injuries, how many concussions they may have had, and to determine what lingering effects they may have from that, from those concussions. Um, now, it, um, it, it's, it's crucial. One of the crucial uh, aspects we're looking at is whether or not having one or more concussions increases your risk for early dementia. Um, so many people have heard about the fear of getting a, 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 a disease or syndrome called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, we hear about that from football players and um, uh, other sports uh, fields like boxing, where people get a lot of repetitive head insults, um, either subconcussive or concussive, um, and then might develop early dementia. There's been many highly publicized cases where individuals um, took their own life as well um, as, as part of that syndrome. But, but right now, we really don't know the answer to the question of um, does a mild traumatic brain injury, by the way, mild traumatic brain injury is essentially synonymous with concussion. Traumatic brain injury comes in all severities, um, all the way from the mildest, which is concussion, to the most severe, in which individuals are comatose for um, uh, days, weeks, or, or even longer, um, and um, typically do not fully recover and have long-term neuro neurologic effects. Um, traditionally, concussion has been considered more of kind of a transient phenomenon. Someone gets a concussion, they fully recover, um, like getting a lot of minor, you know, medical conditions um, where you you have them, you feel poorly, you can't do things as well, and then it resolves and you're back to normal. Um, but you know what we're seeing um, is individuals who have persisting effects in the way of symptoms, and we've seen that clinically for a while. Um, so we're, we're trying to study that aspect, who is not recovering fully and who might develop early dementia. Now, the, the question of early dementia is really critical. Um, our service members, and um, let, let me actually just um, pause and express my gratitude for um, any, uh, I'm sure there's military individuals uh, listening, but for anyone who served in the military, um, currently serving is a family, of someone serving in the military or has served, I really appreciate um, uh, your sacrifice. Um, you, you are what makes our country safe and prosperous, and uh, and thank you, bless you. Um, so we and we wouldn't be doing uh, the reason we're doing this re research is because of you. We're concerned um, if if there is an increased risk of dementia, our service members are getting a lot of concussions. Um, so we're enrolling people who um, had combat deployment, not necessarily having a combat deployment and a concussion. 
And even though we're not trying to enroll necessarily people who had concussions, we're finding that over 80%, um, so four-fifths of the, of, of the people we enroll had a concussion at some point in their life. Um, now, uh, more than half of them had them during a military deployment, a combat deployment. Um, the others may have had them at some other time during the life. Um, so I, I think, it, you know, and it, it makes sense, right? Individuals who um, choose to go into the military um, are generally, they're risking their lives when, they, when you make that decision to uh, enter the military, you're putting your life at risk. And so they're naturally gonna be a little more uh, high risk takers than the rest of the population. So they, they may be more likely to be doing activities um, that might put them at risk for concussions, um, whether it was before military, during or after military. But regardless, um, 81% have had a concussion. And so what we're able to do with this study is say, okay, um, you know, each person in the study, how, how many concussions did you have and at what point in your life did you have them? And we do complete neurologic assessments. And then we um, basically follow them over time to see how they're doing. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell. We're, we, in terms of the evaluations we do, we do extensive um, interviews and questionnaires, but we also do a lot of testing uh, I mentioned that in my office that we do eye computerized eye tracking testing and, and hearing testing, but we also do um, other testing, including uh, drawing blood to look at uh, biomarkers, um, doing uh, advanced imaging of their brain with magnetic resonance imaging, MRI. Um, we do, um, gosh, lots of, lots of testing, including extensive cognitive or neuropsychological testing um, and, um, um, and computerized po posturography or balance testing. Let me, let me ask you a question yeah. here when you mentioned dementia. You know, yes, sir. I, I understand where you're coming from, but some of our listeners, our listeners may not. Generally, when we, when society, when we think of dementia, we think of an older population. But, but what we're getting here is that dementia can happen to younger, younger individuals, early onset dementia due to these blasts, these exposures, these concussions. Is that, is that correct? Well, we don't know if it's due to the blast exposures and concussions, and that's that's why we're studying it. It's an important uh, question, and that's why we're studying it. Um, so, but to, uh, regarding early dementia, essentially that's defined by someone developing dementia before the age of 65. Um, so, yes, so most individuals who develop dementia are older than at 65. Um, but it would be considered early onset if it's before the age of 65. Um, the, um, yeah, so, and we're enrolling, uh, the average age of individuals we are enrolling in our study is in the early 40s. So we actually didn't expect um, anyone enrolled in our studies to have dementia at the time we enrolled them. Um, and uh, also people who enroll in the study have to have the capacity to make the decision to be in the study so they, um, you know, they, they um, can't have, they wouldn't qualify if they had advanced dementia because someone else would have to, a surrogate would have to make that informed. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Ron? Yeah. Um, sure, so sure. the, te the textbook definition of dementia, by the way, um, is um, 
that a person um, has impairment on at least two areas of cognition. Cognition being a fancy word for your thinking abilities, <laughs> which include um, memory, both um, working memory, which is immediate memory, and delayed memory, which is remembering something five minutes later, um, as well as um, concentration and intention, um, how, how quickly your brain processes. Um, uh, it, it includes verbal fluency, um, you know, how well you're able to find words when you want to find them when you're trying to speak. Um, Ron can, um, I'm sure, th think of some other ones, but yeah, me memory, um, attention, verbal fluency, um, there's, there's a executive function, um, your ability to judge, um, problem solve, those sorts of things um, or, or parts of, so you have to have uh, impairments in at least two areas of your cognition um, and you have to have a progressive decline in your function, your ability to manage from day-to-day -day, um, activities, essentially uh, take care of yourself. So there, that's kind of the clinical aspect of the definition. Um, so someone that just tests poorly doesn't have dementia, you have to have, to have the clinical features of um, having difficulties managing with day-to-day -day life activities. And, so that's, that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. And that's a very, very good explanation. Ron over here looks like he's about to jump out of his seat with a question. <laughs> no, he's he's going to correct anything I misstated. <laughs> no, no. Uh, um, let, me, let me just say for, for the listeners uh, here, um, I've known Bill for, geez, close to 25 years, I think. In fact, uh, when we're both at VCU, our offices are right next to each other. And I... I Bill is probably uh, the most humble and uh, dedicated and uh, just smart clinical clinician and researcher, one of the smartest and, and best I've ever worked with. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure people knew that uh, because you usually don't get too many kudos uh, in this line of work. Uh, but Bill's just terrific. And it's really great to have you not only on this podcast, but I know you're going to be doing another one. Um, what uh, I, I know that people just don't get concussions. They wind up having a lot of other things going on. Um, can you just talk a little bit briefly about what some of those other major things are and um, and what you need to do as a, as a researcher to be able to study all those factors? Yeah, so that's a great question because, um, you know, ultimately, um, so if if we end up determining, um, let's say you do have an increased risk of early dementia, <laughs> uh, maybe you don't, um, regardless um, whether concussions give you an increased risk for early dementia, everyone is at risk for developing dementia, right? So um, we're, none of us are immune from developing dementia either early or late. So um, the, the question of um, okay, you're at increased risk. What do we do about that? Um, so really, that's really the, the most critical question is not just finding answers to who's at risk, but finding out ways to help them um, if, 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 you know, to, to prevent dementia. Um, so what do we do about that, actually? How, you know, how do we help you um, so um, it's not just about finding um, interesting scientific information. It, it, it gets back to what do we, what can we do to make lives better? Um, 
and, and both uh, now and prevent problems in the future. Um, so what we're finding so far, and this is not specifically in the study that we're talking about today, but in other areas that, that we've analyzed in, in this study, um, that a lot of the problems that we um, can work on are comorbidities. So um, pe people who, uh, who do military service um, are at risk for a lot of other comorbidities, including post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, depression, chronic pain, um, and so, and, and sleep is also a big issue as well. So, um, and, you know, um, the general population is obviously at risk for these uh, comorbidities as well. So um, we're, we're not working in a pure um, laboratory environment. We're working with human beings who have um, other issues besides their concussions. Um, um, so whether it's um, sleep apnea, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's depression. Um, and so what we're finding, th those sorts of conditions are modifiable with treatment. And so if we can link um, some of the problems, some of the objective problems that are people having to these treatable conditions, that's a great way to help someone say, you know, um, I'm, if we say, well, you know, a lot of what we're finding in terms of problems you're having are actually more linked to your sleep problems than a prior concussion. We can't undo a prior concussion, but we can we can work on a sleep problem through um, through different ways to um, help them behaviorally with sleep, potentially medications, assessing them if they have sleep apnea and might need that treated um, with with uh, continuous pressure, positive pressure, or some other aspect of treatment. So yeah, no. The great question, that's what we want to do is find out ways to actually help people. Um, and what we're finding so far in our studies is that the comorbidities um, uh, are a big factor in, in how their in how their outcomes are going. So, so, uh, so there's a follow up and kind of shifting gears here just a little bit. You know, in reading your abstract, you had gone through the ICD, looking at ICD codes, the internal classification of diseases. Could you explain a little bit to our listeners kind of what that is? And then yeah, the difference um, between a, a false positive and a sort of a false negative. Right. So um, the International Classification of Diseases is a um, coding system that's used um, in healthcare systems um, to classify any disease or injury that falls into the medical realm. Um, and so um, there's a code, for example, for a tick bite. <laughs> there's an ICD code for um, uh, coronavirus infection. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's an ICD code for, every, there's multiple ICD codes for traumatic brain injuries. Um, there's multiple ICD codes for different types of dementia. Um, and so whenever, um, you go into a healthcare system, whether you go to a doctor's office or you're in the hospital, the clinicians, the providers who are treating that you as a patient, are in the system are entering a code of what your conditions are, um, both your main condition and potentially other secondary conditions as well. Um, and so all of that stuff gets entered, uh, all these codes get entered in the hospital data system. And that um, a lot of medical researchers utilize 
those systems to do large data analyses where they can aggregate um, data from patients, not only across a single hospital system, but across multiple hospital systems. Um, now, what the VA healthcare system has is something called, um, the Veterans Affairs System has something called, the, um, the, the acronym is VINCHI, um, and it's the VA Informatics and Computer um, Infrastructure System. Gotta love those uh, acronyms. <laughs> something close to that. Um, but basically, that's the central VA system to, uh, that, that houses all of these ICD codes that are entered by providers whenever um, patients go into a VA inpatient or outpatient center um, for treatment. Um, and so what we were able to do in our study is to take our, not only collect our research data, but we were able to link up um, to the, to the, to the uh, ICD codes that are in the system so that we could extract that. And that's what um, the particular study that is focused on this podcast, we um, were able to marry up um, that um, central um, administrative data with ICD codes to our prospectively collected uh, research data. Prospectively collected just means we planned it out, okay? We, we, we said, this is what we're gonna collect, this is how we're gonna collect it. And, we, so we collect that um, specific research data, um, but we're, we don't have a great way to get all of their clinical data, but we were able to, um, through the Vinci um, system in the VA, um, uh, pull all of that data and match it with our participants. And so we um, utilize that for this study. Bill, I was... Um... Uh, um, I was just sort of thinking about the practicalities of being a clinician in the VA system. And, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, with these diagnostic codes, um, giving certain codes will allow you to provide a treatment that you might want to provide. And then sometimes another code might not allow you to provide the treatment that, uh, that the um, veteran might need. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the ICE, these diagnostic codes, uh, how accurate or how much you can rely on them and, and, and maybe how, how this uh, study that you're doing uh, for, with the Limbic Sensi grant can, uh, can be more accurate or make the research findings better. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so if I'm a treating, um, Position, which I which I am, I do, and, and part of my <laughs> part by, of my by life. Way, this, uh, this question was from a clinician, just uh, for yeah. full transparency. This yeah. good uh, <laughs> question was from a consumer who uh, who saw the uh, manuscript and was wondering. About oh, it. excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, um, so I enter ICD codes myself because I do provide clinical care, <laughs> and so what happens essentially is. Um, the, the whatever system you're in requires um, you to enter something. <laughs> and so whenever I order a lab test, for example, or an x-ray, um, whenever um, I have a um, encounter, a, a visit, inpatient, outpatient, uh, there has to be a um, ICD code attached to that. And um, the problem is that's not like your foremost thing as a, as a provider. You're thinking about, okay, I've decided let's say I decided someone needs a specific x-ray. 
as I'm ordering it, something's going to pop up to ask me to put in an ICD code. So I'm not necessarily, um, you know, going to spend a lot of time thinking about what is the most accurate ICD code. I might start typing in something and then a bunch of options might show up and I'll just choose one real quickly so that I can move on, get it ordered. Um, and um, so that I'm able to, you know, move, you know, take care of as many patients as I can today. Right. So um, there's that aspect. There's also the aspect is you may, at the time you're entering them, you may not know the diagnosis for sure. So um, you're in a situation where I've just evaluated this person, I'm thinking there's a differential diagnosis, but I'm not certain really what the primary diagnosis is, but I still have to enter something. So I just kind of make my best kind of guess. Um, and so because of these reasons, because um, sometimes people aren't thinking a lot about what they're entering, and sometimes they simply don't know the most accurate diagnosis, um, there is a question about how accurate these codes are. Um, so they do allow you to analyze large, large sets of data, but um, it may not give you the, the most accurate um, information, which is um, one of the reasons we wanted to do this study and that we had data that we collected in our research that would, that would kind of give us some insight into that about um, how accurate these codes might be. You know, that's interesting. It's, it's something I've said in the past, and I'll say it again. A lot of times, traumatic brain injury, depending on the situation at hand, is a secondary injury behind a more primary life-threatening injury at that time. And, you know, a lot of times in a triage situation or MassCal or even in a, a hospital, as you, as you pointed out, Dr. Walker, you want to get the, the person moving through the pipeline, you know, to receive, to receive the care that they need. Ron? Yeah, um, yeah it, mild traumatic brain injury is particularly tricky um, because um, there, there was actually um, an excellent study done out of Washington um, probably 10, 15 years ago where they, the research staff went down and interviewed individuals who came into the emergency department with motor vehicle accidents. And they found um, that about half of the people who had had concussions, it wasn't and it wasn't documented in the emergency department notes. So, um, you, and on the other hand, there can be overdiagnosis of it as well. Someone can um, be reporting to some provider some, some difficulties um, after some incident, and it might get, um, they might have a false positive diagnosis as well. So, with my, so um, with mild, with concussions, you can see. Um, false negatives and false positives um, often. So, but I no, think Ron was going to say something. Great detailed explanation, Ron. Well, I was just going to say I know that uh, that we've been uh, uh, talking for a while. I, I love the explanation on the uh, diagnostic codes. I did not realize that you had to provide a diagnosis when you ordered a test. Which, of course, you know, if you're trying to do the test to see what the diagnosis is, you know, if it's differential, it might be fifty-fifty. But you had to, you know, say, oh, which one is it? Um, so that that was a that was a, a learning thing for me as well. So what what. What, Bill, would you say are the two or three take-home messages from your paper uh, for clinicians and, and, and veterans and their family members? 
Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that, well, as I mentioned, everyone is at risk for dementia. Um, so um, even though that's not really what, you know, we studied in this paper, I think that um, utilizing uh, known ways to help um, lower that risk are important. And those include um, holistic measures, um, uh, you know, basically lifestyle things, um, getting regular exercise, um, um, sleeping well. If you're having sleeping problems, get it evaluated um, and find out ways to get it better because that's that's really um, crucial. Um, treating um, depression, treating PTSD. Um, as I mentioned, um, people, um, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned it or not, but um, we had five individuals in our study who had received ICD codes um, two different encounters who met the, the essentially that were dementia codes. So, so we had out of 1,600 people, roughly um, a, a little over that, we had five individuals who met the ICD um, definition of dementia. Um, they had received dementia codes at least twice. Um, so we had... Uh, six other people who had gotten a single dementia code, but we did not count those as um, definite because there's this kind of, they didn't meet the criteria that is used in this line of research. But for this line of research, we found five individuals. Um, those five individuals um, had um, some differences between the rest of our um, um, study uh, group. Um, they, um, had more difficulties, day-to-day -day difficulties. Um, they had um, poorer visual memory, um, visual memory being looking um, at a, um, looking at a um, three-dimensional um, uh, picture and then taking that picture away and trying to reproduce it is kind of how we measured the visual memory. Um, so they had more difficulty in, with that, um, and they had more, um, much greater PTSD um, symptoms and diagnoses. So um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, we think, um, is a huge factor in outcomes for anyone who has had a mild traumatic brain injury. So um, it's, it's possible that their problems could be um, more related to just severe um, post-traumatic stress disorder. They also, um, you know, had, like I said, more difficulties uh, functioning. Um, so what I would say is that, look, you, you know, um, whether or not they actually have dementia, they're, they're having more difficulties in, in life. And so I would encourage um, people who are struggling to get help. We have systems for, for healthcare to help them, we have um, uh, excellent polytrauma systems in the VA hospital, um, but there's things you can do short of going to the doctor as well, as I mentioned. Um, nutritious diet, getting a good, good night's sleep every night, um, avoiding excess alcohol, and um, doing regular physical exercise are all really proven ways um, to help prevent dementia, um, whether or not you've had a concussion. Um, the other important aspect is um, productivity and socialization. Um, so um, interacting with other people, being productive, 
um, also um, helps delay and prevent dementia. So Dr. Walker, we've kind of come to the end of our allotted time, but I would like to, to, on behalf, to say on behalf of the, the entire cast, really appreciate your commitment to our, our veteran population and doing cutting edge research and getting it, getting it pushed down to help the, to help the people that needs it. Um, thanks for being on the show. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a good time. Ron, do you have any, any closing thoughts? Yeah, uh, just uh, uh, thanks for the very informative uh, uh, talk, uh, interview, Bill. Um, we're going to have a link to the Olympic Sensi website uh, to, to provide people more information about the study, about your paper in particular. Um, so just those who are interested in more detail can uh, find those that information on the accompanying uh, uh, link or links. Yeah. With that, Dr. Walker, we really thank you for being here. We look forward to seeing you, I think, actually here before too long again on, a, on, a, on another <laughs> study. So, seriously. So, uh, on behalf of our my co-host, uh, Dr. Ronald Steele, myself, and our unseen unseen team that runs the machine, uh, the Colonel, Miss AC, and Ron up top in the box, we thank you for tuning in uh, to the Abstract Veteran Series, where we look at cutting-edge research from the Olympic Census Study through a laid back, humoristic, and always fun lens. So look forward to seeing you next time. And in the meantime, take care and we'll see you then. Have a good one. Thank you to Dr. William Walker for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veteran Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.